We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights, they are also in the show notes. And all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Brent Freeman, founder of Stealth Venture Labs, a full-service growth marketing agency that has worked with such companies as Home Chef, Factor, and Mudwater. Brent has had his share of failures. He's been an entrepreneur for 15 years and has been involved in over 20 startups and is the founder of eight of those startups. He describes his experience as failing forward, taking what lessons he's learned to eventually find success. Before starting Stealth Venture Labs, he was using his knowledge to help other entrepreneurs too. Nine years ago, he realized he wanted to do more than just advise others. He wanted to be part of business building again. Originally founded as a studio to help e-commerce brands go to market, Stealth Venture Labs evolved into an agency that provides growth marketing services. However, Brent explains, the company is more like a staff augmentation team, differentiating itself from other agencies by focusing on performance rather than time spent, where each team focuses on a company to help them grow. His agency provides a month of free onboarding and then contracts on a month-to-month basis to ensure clients are getting what they need. He says this unique approach is his key to success. Now, let's get better together. Brent Freeman, welcome to the show. Thanks. What's up, Jerry? How are you, man? Uh, you know, just chilling. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a nice day in San Francisco, relatively speaking. At least it's not raining. <laughs> yep. Love that. Lived there for a long time. Know that. Know the drill. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm excited to talk with you because you're the founder and president of Stealth Venture Labs and you do something similar to what I do which is super cool. Always love talking shop. We actually 
talked a lot of shop before we hit record. Um, and it's one of those things where I can't wait to hear kind of your take on a lot of stuff that you're doing that's really similar to what we're doing. So um, excited to to get into that conversation. But before we do that, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it's always great to talk shop, as you said. And you know, how I got doing what I'm doing today is just a, a comedy of failures stacked on top of each other into some sort of semblance of success. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, entrepreneurship is just a series of failing forward. And I have been an entrepreneur for 15 years. Um, I was counting on uh, last night, actually, how many companies I've either started or been a part of starting. And I'm in like the high 20s, you know. Um, and uh, in terms of companies that I was the founder, uh, you know, in, in getting going, or I'm at around eight. And so, you know, what we do, it, I'll kind of start with what we do and back into that, which, you know, Stealth Venture Labs is a consumer digital marketing agency. And we help consumer brands profitably acquire customers online. We do it for new brands. We do it for brands at scale, stage agnostic. Uh, and we are really, really good at it. And the reason we're good at it is because uh, once upon a time, I was really bad at it. And I was the operator and I was the client, uh, you know, 10 plus years ago, running my own marketplace uh, startup uh, when I was living in Los Angeles. And I had a really passionate dream to build the Etsy, but for brands that give back, socially conscious uh, Etsy, uh, really focused not just on artists and, art and artisans, but uh, on brands, companies like Tom Shoes and, and, and such. And so we built a marketplace, not knowing anything about tech or, you know, this was actually, we launched it before Facebook ads were even a thing. Uh, and uh, from the operator seat, I got to learn the challenges and woes of what it means to hire uh, an outsourced agency to help you with your efforts and then fire that agency and hire another agency and fire that agency. Rinse, repeat five, six times, realizing I needed to build an in-house team because the agency wasn't going to do what I needed them to do. And then that led to a whole series of its own issues. <clears throat> and by the time we figured it out, we started to really scale. And that was the same time Facebook launched its ad platform. And I was one of the first users of Facebook in college, having a .edu address. Um, <clears throat> and so I was a native Facebook user. And then when the platform launched, I was like, holy crap, this was the, uh, you know, the holy grail of direct response. One penny cost per click at the time. Wild. And so from the CEO operator seat, I got to really see on the client side, the woes of um, a traditional agency service providing model and how difficult it is to hire an in-house team um, and, uh, to help you do it and how much time it takes and recruiters fees and you know, all of that. And ultimately when we did it, we finally got you know, it all in place. We started to scale and then the market, similar to where we are now, it's uh, February of 23, market went soft. Right, it happens. It happens. The economic winters are a natural part of the cycle of, of the economics, you know, of, of our world. Uh, but the market went soft, and our biggest competitor imploded uh, the same week we opened our Series A, and that was it. We ran out of money. You know, there's a lot more to it. I can share, you know, in the in the weeds of the learnings from that. But um, overnight, uh, we had to we had to shut down, and it was like losing the true love of your life. I mean, we were in all the major press and media, the Today Show, Forbes, blah, you name it. We had it, but. One thing we didn't have is we didn't understand how to move quick enough. Uh, and, and so when we shut that business down, we sold it technically, but soft landing, sold it for parts. Um, I went and worked at a venture fund as an entrepreneur in residence in LA to understand how the venture sausage is made. 
Turns out it's not so pretty, but it was a learning lesson. Um, and I became a venture partner with them, helping bring the deals in and helping other entrepreneurs avoid the mistakes that I made. And that advising consulting role turned into doing. Um, and they asked, say, hey, we don't need advice. We need boots on the ground. Can you do this for us? And that's really how Stealth Venture Labs began. We've been around for almost uh, nine years, eight and a half years. Uh, and we started as a venture studio, helping co-found e-commerce brands, bring them to market, bring them through um, a series of, of, of frameworks that we developed to help them find product market fit faster and then grow and scale. And then somewhere around four or five years ago, uh, we started doing that same methodology as if we're in-house and founding brands, but for hire and what we would call as an agency model. Uh, but we are very different from most traditional marketing agencies. We're more like a staff augmentation team, more like an in-house team extension um, that builds and grows and scales with our clients, no matter what stage they are, because we've done it at all stages. Uh, and that's, that's a very rare skill set in this market. A lot of people come in, oh, I've done it like uh, I've gone from a million to 10 or 10 to 100 or one zero to 1 million. You know, it's very difficult to, and I know this because we've built it, <laughs> very difficult to build that engine that can scale up with brands. And so about four or five years ago, we started doing this uh, for hire. And we've been fortunate to have some really great successes. Um, helped a brand called Home Chef go from 5 million in revenue to 100 million ARR, um, meal kit delivery. And then they sold to Kroger's for about 700 million. Um, and then again, we did it with a company called Factor 75, now known as Factor. Uh, that exact same thing. We came in as the kind of core team to grow and scale. And then they sold to HelloFresh for about 270 million a couple of years ago. Um, and other clients are, are clients like Mudwater and, and other. So we're big in the food and meal kit space, but also we have a, a wide range of any direct consumer brands that we work with. And so how I got to where I am today um, is through failing, learning, applying, and being stubborn as hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and really just being malleable, listening to the market. And understanding that you win some and you learn some. It's kind of a model that I live by. And, and so, you know, sometimes people look at, you know, uh, people at the, the phase and they go, oh, my God, like, how did you get there? The overnight success. It's like, oh, yeah, the overnight success is 10 plus years in the making. Yeah. A lot of body shots. Um, not in the sense of, of liquor, but in the sense of like taking punches. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I, I hear you. It's just it's just amazing the the journey that you've been on. I mean, what's really interesting is that you know I've heard of these venture studios, you know, and I'm just fascinated by them because you know there's the accelerator where you have your own idea, and then we're going to help you accelerate. But then the studio is what's generating ideas and then finding people to run them. I'm I'm assuming that's what you were trying to do. It was kind of a hybrid. Um, hybrid, okay. You know, yeah, we didn't raise a fund and, and didn't have a ton of our own money. And so what we did is we found entrepreneurs with good ideas. And we found entrepreneurs with uh, supply chain advantages, um, figuring out something on the back end that would give them the ability to like undercut prices online for their vertical. And then we would help them adapt what it is that they had. And we would come in as the equity partner for that, uh, you know, for that kind of partnership, co-founder. Um, and then we started started doing our own ideas. So that's why I say it was hybrid. So we did it for companies where we partnered and we came in as minority st uh, stakeholders. And then we started our own in-house brands, kind of spun them out in various different ways, found operators to run them. 
Um, and we've done everything from, like I said, starting our own, partnering, doing service for hire, all the way through to just capital investments. Um, and a lot of learnings, a lot of learnings across that entire arc. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you talk about like hiring an agency and the hire, fire, hire, fire, hire, fire. <laughs> I've heard that so many times. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, entrepreneurs should look for in an agency? Yeah. Some of the red flags, like, how do you, cause I get asked this question a lot. Obviously I'm in the agency business now, you know, everyone knows that used to have my own firm. Now I'm at this new firm and I, I'm just curious as how to make that more productive. I mean, even from, from my angle, like how, how we can be more of service, right? Is there, is there anything that you've learned yeah. you know, on both sides of the table? I think when you come out of being the client and then you go into the service provider side, it gives you a different view to the pain points of who the customer is. A lot of brands, um, sorry, a lot of agencies will develop their, their, you know, ICP, their ideal client profile. And then they will try to go after that ideal client. But until you've walked a day in that ideal client profile's shoes, it's very difficult to understand what's actually going on in there beyond just the need of, I need somebody to help me with this thing. And so what I think is important when people are evaluating and looking at agencies, it's not just, although this is important, what their you know past track record is, their case studies, testimonials, referrals, um, you know what they've been a part of, at what stages, all, you know, all that stuff is really, really, really important. Um, because there's a lot of people out there doing marketing on some level who have been a part of some ride in some way. They can put a logo on the site, but they actually weren't part of the results. Um, and so really understanding where and what role they played in that uh, is, is, is super, super, super important. But then how the service is provided. Because you can have a technically expert, uh, a technical expert inside of a marketing team. But when that person leaves, what happens? And so what we've done is we have, we have codified this into institutional processes and we, we continuously improve upon it. And then we have excellent people managing excellent proven formulas and processes that apply kind of across the board. And so it's really important to understand not just what they've done in the past, but how they did it, like drilling in into specificity. And then how does the team communicate and interact with the client? In service businesses, it's a hard business because you have to um, you have to basically be so focused on the vital few things that move the needle because you're not full time. You're just not a full time team, right? And so you have to focus on the things that move the needle. So what happens is that traditional agencies look at their utilization of their team and they staff and they just time box, um, and, and it's not based upon performance or not. It's just time boxing. It's a calculation of like, okay, well, I can't be over on this one. And so therefore we're okay with the risk of that being something we're not going above and beyond for. And so uh, that stems into how they communicate, how often they communicate, what the access is to the people actually doing the work in the business. So the way that, that we um, set this up was, was more like a marketing department. If I'm as a CEO running a brand, I need access to my marketing department. I need to talk to my media buyer. I need to talk to my graphic designer. I need to talk to my content strategist, right? Yeah, I also need to talk to my project manager to keep the trains running on time, but I need direct access. And so we run in pods that work directly with our clients um, day in, day out, hour in, hour out inside Slack. Real-time communication, 
Um, we set weekly stand-up, sometimes more than that. We have on-demand calls as and where necessary. And we are, are, are kind of a true secret weapon for you know our two um, client profiles, if you will, on this, on our side, is you have founder, entrepreneur, and you have director, kind of executive, right? Very different needs in, in what they want and need, but both have the need for a trusted team underneath them to execute something that they can then manage against because they have a thousand other things in the organization they need to focus on that if they can't get this off their plate, they can't focus on the other stuff that nobody else can. And so we set up internally our uh, our systems, our communication, our processes, our reporting, everything as if it's an in-house team um, because that's the way it should be. And that's probably one of the, our, our keys to success, uh, you know, across the board, then you have to obviously perform <laughs> if, you know, if you don't, if you don't perform and you don't do good work and it doesn't produce results, it's obviously what matters. Um, but uh, when we think about it like that, we start to turn the agency model a little bit on its head. Um, and then it's on my, then it's on my dime for my marketers to be more effective um, with their time uh, rather than focusing on busy work or, or avoiding calls, or I can't, I can't take this with you because I'm overallocated. It's kind of the dirty, you know, the dirty secret of a lot of agencies um, uh, behind the scenes. It's to maximize EBITDA for its own sake, so you don't give certain clients time, so you starve them of what actually would work because it takes above and beyond attitude. And that's never, that's never uh, how we've operated, and it's you know not how we operate today. So does that? lend itself to a more like project-based model or a retainer model? Cause I know I hear a lot of, you know, a lot of people like don't want to sign a retainer model or it's like a hybrid of that. And, and it's interesting because I'm always to your point about being part of the team. That's very important, right? Like it's not an, you know, like if someone's freaking out, you need to take the call. It's <laughs> like, Oh, that's your week. That's your hours for the week. I mean, Again, up up to up to the management and the project yeah. manager to, to manage that. But what what is the whole retainer versus project based? Because I hear a lot of this debate. So it's interesting. So going right back to what you said is up to management. We actually don't make that up to management. Management obviously watches where people spend their time because we want to know. But the manager is not saying you can or can't do this. The manager the manager is looking at the results, and so. If the client needs to talk to the the team member, go for it. Great, let's do it. We're not we're not controlling that because that's why would we get in the middle of that? That's something that's important. That's just going to create frustration and ultimately not you know what we what we what we do. So so um, what is as we think about the the retainer versus project model? We don't do project basis. Um, we decided a long time ago to not do that just because you wouldn't pay a full time in house employee on a project basis. And if we're looking at ourselves the way I just explained, um, why, why would we set our business model up as such? It's also less sustainable for us because um, then we always are having to hunt and kill and hunt and kill, which actually propagates the cycle, right? Uh, uh, so, so the way that we set our work up is we, we de-risk it for our clients in a different way. We, we, we say, okay, we are a flat rate or percentage of spend uh, performance model. Um, we work with our brands and we give them free onboarding. The first month is free because typically they have to either get rid of someone in house or wind down another agency and they don't want to double pay. So we understand that we'll put the skin in the game, onboard you for 30 days for free. By the way, some of our largest costs come in those first 30 days. So we're, you know, we're, we're putting a lot in. 
Then when they come in, there is a minimum that is based upon their spend and what the services are. And on a retainer basis, that is uh, the minimum fee, right? And it's um, not even a break even of our time, but it is kind of the, the minimum. And we typically price it to be the equivalent of, of one FTE, but we bring a team of like 10 in our pods, right? Eight to 10. And so the, the value is just oversized for the money because people don't mind paying. We all don't mind paying for value, right? And so in that process, as we, as we structure all the models and we give the onboarding for free and we have our minimums, then we have a performance structure. So that, and we manage our performance from the P&L of the brand. So if they have a budget and they have a tar- target customer acquisition cost, we do not go a penny above that budget unless we're crushing on customer acquisition and they approve it. So again, like an in-house team. Uh, and, and then that way uh, we are all aligned. Targets, acquisitions, budgets, you know, we cover the base costs, awesome. We only make money if we grow together. And um, we're only as good as our last month performance. So we do month-to-month agreements, no long-term contracts. We call it the the stealth, the SVL guarantee, love us or leave us. Uh, And that way, because the reality of of our businesses is I could be in the business of forcing people to stay with their contracts. That doesn't lead to a lot. All of our businesses are referral basis. Right? So that doesn't lead to any sort of long-term type of brand reputation. And so instead of putting the onus on, ha you signed a contract, I'm going to hold you to it. Ah, and we didn't, we didn't perform. Or I, I say, great, put our money where their mouth is. If we're not working, if you had an employee or an in-house team in your organization and they weren't performing and you needed to fire them, you have an at-will employee, terminate, rinse, repeat. It should be the same with us. So if you really go back to the genesis of how and why we set this up is like, it's like our business model reflects very similarly to how we operate. That makes sense. No, it does. It does. I mean, yeah, I haven't heard of many agencies doing that. It's. Because uh, you got to be good at what you do. Otherwise, you're Well, gonna- there's that. There's, you know what? That's hundred percent true. <laughs> you definitely have to deliver on the promise. Um, and I'm curious if, if that's just like, so you do that on the B to B to C side and I, I don't know how you don't have a lot of B to B to B clients, but I'm curious if that model would work for them too. I guess, it could, I guess it would depend on the incentives. Like what? Yeah. What if- I don't know if it, it actually, you know, I don't know if it 100% applies on the B to B. Well, so we are, we are B to B, right? Our clients are B to C. So uh, we yeah. work with, you know, our clients are other, other businesses. So we are B to B service company. Right. Um, but the, because they're B to C, the way that their internal structures are a little bit different. If you're, you know, B to B to B, right. So right. speaking in a lot of the businesses, I think the philosophy still applies, which is (laughs) let's anchor to the pain points of who our clients are, what they need, uh, what they're trying to achieve, how uh, we might be able to do something differently. If we were the client, um, what would we want? And when we, when we re-anchor to that and and adjust from there, it can be scary, especially for established businesses uh, because there's a lot of unknowns and there's a fear um, of certain stuff. And certainly, you know, when you're dealing with like B2B SaaS, there's enterprise value around, you know, contract values and de-risking. And so, you know, I understand the venture world and how that works and, and, and how those are all created. And so I'm not suggesting that, that those are bad. I am suggesting though, that if you can control your own destiny, 
you'll never go wrong by anchoring your business to the, make it a ridiculous no-brainer offer uh, for the for the organization to work with you and bring and just deliver insane value to make them absolute mad incredible fans of yours you know yeah and that's hard it's really hard <laughs> no i think it is i mean if the incentives are not aligned and you don't understand the end customer pain point i mean it's just so fascinating because i think that philosophy applies even if you're not running an agency i mean yeah. just the whole idea of walking in the customer's shoe understanding the pain point you know we always try to figure out you know a lot of the companies that we work with when you look at their website it just screams me 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 instead of how can i help you 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 right and it's it's i would i thought it's a one it's like one off stuff it's not i see this all the time it's more focused on everyone yeah yeah it's yeah. i mean cuz what happens you get so wrapped up in your own little world that you start talking about all the features and no one gives about the gobbledygook what are people there to do? And what's the core? And break that's really hard, right? If I had more time, I would send I would write you a shorter letter, they say. Hey. And so, but when you get really clear, when you get really clear on that, um, what it is you do, you can start doing some really cool stuff, right? And so, like when you think about, you know, a lot of people think that sales, for example, is a pound pavement, smile and dial, grind, grind, grind. And it, it's not that those things don't work and they can and they do, but when you're really trying to focus on how do you get quality, not just quantity, but quality and quantity, when you start to unpack people's psychology, we do a lot with, with psych- psychological uh, work and targeting for our, for our clients' customers for how to find people online. And when you start to unpack all of that, it goes back to the days of, of um, you know, Plato, the, the hero's journey of, you know, here is the hero, typically the prospect that you're trying to go after, right? They have some sort of problem. Insert guide you as company with some sort of solution to said problem. Follow me on this step-by-step pathway. If you go down this pathway, that's a bad choice. And that's not, you're not going to want that. Go down this pathway. Hallelujah. Right. And then here's how, you know, here's how it, uh, how it resolves. That's like every movie book, you know, out there. And, and when you start to, we start to bring it into sales instead of bring it into marketing and into your websites. You you uh, can start to see where you might be actually off. You are all you are already in the solution bit, but it's not necessarily anchored to the problem bit, or it's overly verbose. Or so you know, if you look at our website again, February twenty twenty three, it says we acquire customers online profitably. Some version of that because that's what we do. No, profitably acquire customers online. That's the first header yeah. two. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. That's how there you go. Right. So it's, it's a version of that because that's what we do. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, what you just described, of course, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, very famously, you know, the monomyth, uh, Don Miller over at Story Brand talks a lot about, right. this. you know, he's right. Yeah. He, he, I've seen him a couple speak a couple times, you know, and I've done my own journey into storytelling through the story grid and other things like my hobbies, writing books and, I've been doing a bunch of ones called, you know, story-driven outreach, story-driven slide, you know, death. Oh, then this is, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. Oh, yeah. oh I'm, I'm the converted. <laughs> <laughs> I try to convince people all the time that the best story wins. And for whatever reason, they don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was on a call today 
And I'm like, okay, here's the story. Here's where we're going to tell it. And it went good, went okay. You know, I'm not, you know, it, but it was, but the, the, the propensity, the gravity towards, well, we need to tell them what we sell. I'm just like, no, you don't <laughs> like have them ask, oh, yeah. tell me more. Well, how can you, you know, like yeah. in your, I just, ah, it just is frustrating. It's, you know, interesting uh, on that. I wonder how like the looping thought that immediately came up was like, I wonder how you can get kind of meta on this. Like, how do you use the hero's journey? How do you use Dawn's stuff? How do you use, right? I mean, timetable, you know, how do you use that to sell that, <laughs> right? To, to be like, okay, they are the hero. They have a problem. They can't figure out how to position themselves. I am the guy, trying, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do you insert yourself in that like whole other meta world? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Don, you know, Don Miller does a pretty good job of it. Like I said, I've seen him speak twice. Yeah. yeah. He, he was brought in by a client of ours. You've read the book. Um, and he actually, when he's pitching it, it's pretty funny because, you know, I'm a story nerd. So like all this stuff to me is like just bone simple. Like to me, it's like, duh. Right. But in the room, you know, and this was at like a sales conference, like a sales kickoff. I don't know, it's 300, 300, 400 sales professionals in the room, marketing, whatever. And I mean, he's going through it and I've, I've seen this before. I've seen him do this before. I've heard the story. I'm like, yeah, I, this is like bone simple, but yet it's still this, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to, for whatever reason, I, you know, I think maybe, I mean, I'd love your thoughts on this. Maybe people are just scared to your point about you have to be really good. It's hard to tell a good story if you don't have a good story to tell. And so, yeah, here, I think, I think what happens here um, is it's darkest just before dawn where what this does is um, it forces the light on that. They have a crack in the foundation which for whatever reason, they could have gotten massive to get there, but you know, it doesn't like look at Blackberry. Like doesn't that massive does Kodak, like it, massive doesn't mean forever. Right. And so, so, you know, you could be early stage, you could be late stage. It's just when you, when you have a, an aversion to it, it's either you're going against the machine, a culture, or you're afraid that if you make too much radical, this is going to like, Oh my God, what does that mean? I'm going to have other stakeholders and you don't want to shake the, you know, the boat, and, right? The whole, you don't get fired by hiring IBM situation, which means like, oh, so great. I'm going to pick the middle of the road freaking thing to, you know, but it, you know, you never got fired. Okay. So that, and I think that's like what happens to a lot of people is that everybody, uh, a lot of companies just get okay with just being okay. And, um, you know, as a young company, I can't afford young, you know, eight years old, but like, as a small, young, entrepreneurially focused company, we, we we can't afford to miss this. And I think I'm just wired differently. I think there's some entrepreneurs that just get in, they look at business as only business, and they're just looking at a series of dials, and they don't care about the people or the customers. <laughs> All they care about is a three to seven year timeline to flip and turn and yada yada. And I just um, I'm more of an artist than an entrepreneur, I think. You know, and so I think in that in that in that way, I've just always looked at business differently, which is like the business is a reflection of me. And um, that's not scalable. But when you take that approach of like, how do we make this business high ethos? How do we make this product high ethos? And how do we 
in every, you know, every year, uh, recenter on, on customer pains and figure out where we need to adapt. I don't know, for me, like that's the only way, but I think what happens is like you get into a machine in a way that it's worked and it's always worked and this is what we've done. And so then making shifts in that is scary because change, you know, has always, um, society doesn't reward people who drive change catalysts until much after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. The status quo is pretty hard to upend and, um, yeah, no, I, I would agree. Um, I've always been of the opinion, like, you know, I, everyone, <laughs> I always say I'm the first to believe. So someone will have this really crazy idea and I'm like, gosh, that'll never work. Where do I sign up? Let's go. You know, because <laughs> to me, it's just like, what's where interesting things happen. You know, yeah. it's just, I get bored once it gets to the, you know, turn the crank, you know, I, I, I don't know why, I don't know. Maybe it's just well, because you're an entrepreneur, Jerry. I mean, yeah. you know, like yeah. you can be an entrepreneur, you can be an entrepreneur yeah. and, and it, it's the same thing. It's preneur, right? Uh, outward, inward. It's just all really centered around like you see the world differently and you want to solve problems in, in your own way. Right. That's why you do this podcast, why you're an, you know, you're an author, you know, why you started your own businesses. And so there's just, I think that, and, and, you know, I think it's really important. Entrepreneurs are not just born. Some people say entrepreneurs are born and that's it. Entrepreneurs are developed, you know, uh, and um, uh, you can have an entrepreneurial spirit. I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until I realized there was a business path for me to be creative and kind of obstinate, <laughs> you know, and kind of like stubborn and like, it doesn't have to be like that. You don't need to be a jerk to be a boss and take, you know, pillage, uh, you know, the environment to make goods and things like that, you know? So I, I, it, it was just more of like the stubborn mindset of being like challenging the status quo that, that does well for, for being an entrepreneur, you know? Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, you get into a big company, the status quo sets in because people are worried about the growth numbers, you know, right. never got fired for hiring IBM, but it's also the, the culture is less risk averse primarily because they're trying to, make sure the status quo doesn't go away. I mean, you know, I was thinking- so, dude, you're, you're so, you're so effing right. It's, it's, um, I don't know if you're a football fan, right. But like, we don't want to talk about the Niners today. It was a bad thing, but, <laughs> but, you know, they say prevent defense prevents wins. Right. Yeah. And um, it's like, you're playing not to lose. You're playing not to get fired. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you're not playing to win. Yeah. And that might work for a little bit, but yeah. when, when the pressure's on, Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Playing to win is what threads the needle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I don't mean win of like, I'm not a super competitive guy either. Like, oh, crush, hustle, grind, let's go. Like it's, it's what I mean by playing to win is thinking proactively. And, and if, you know, you recenter onto, we are here as humans to grow. I believe we're here to grow and evolve yep. and learn. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then playing not to lose is actually is actually a regression. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, I always, you know, they always have the best defense is a good offense, you know, all the analysis. Yeah, you need that. Yeah. But you I also that. think it, you know, it's an interesting thing to 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 think about because I think a lot of time, and I think it's primarily fear and primarily like what happens if I fail, like to your point, you're like. I just failed my way to success, fail forward. 
you know, um, you know, failure is always an option, but never the final result is what I always say, because it's true. Like, how am I going to learn anything outside of my little sphere of influence unless I push the boundary and pushing the boundary is what being an entrepreneur is all about. Like that's by definition, we create something from nothing. <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I'm just always fascinated when I talk to people that have been in, you know, big companies and trying to do transformation or, you know, or like what's top of mind for me now is like all these people getting laid off from all these big companies right. and literally had a client, one of our clients got let go and it's like, okay, now what? Right. And it's one of those things where, oh, I thought I'd go to a big company and be safe. And I just don't think. Dude, it's, it's, it, it, I think we really need to, we really need to talk about this because there is um, a misnomer that being in the crowd, being in the herd is safe. Uh, and uh, until you get to times like this, where it's not. And um, until you get to realize that you can work your entire life and end up with not enough to actually pay your bills in retirement, um, you know, uh, across the board. And so I think that risk is not um, what people think it is. Um, I think that it, it, for me, it is more risky to stop and, uh, than it is to keep going. It is more risky to, to not invest in myself than it is to invest, right? I recently, you know, did a, a big uh, personal growth training um, seminar that I wanted to really dig into. And it was more than I wanted to spend, right? And um, I was like, no, 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 no. This is the, because I was like, well, I could take the same one, put it in the market five years from now. It's a pretty good time to invest in the market, right? And I was like, the geometric return is is myself investing in myself, and so I think I think you know people um, validate uh, risk differently based upon well I have a mortgage I have kids I have responsibilities and I understand that, but what we're I'm not talking about taking a job and paying the bills. It's when you you do that and then you stop developing and you stop the personal growth. And you stop the investment in yourself and in your future, right? Uh, in that, um, you know. So I, I've had more businesses, way more businesses, go under than I've had businesses be successful, way more. And um, I, I learn so much more when a business fails, or when something fails, or we're in a hardship, or you know, necessity is the mother of all invention, and it's puckering, and there's sleepless nights, and you're trying to figure it out, and you don't know how you're going to make this and do that. That's the time, you know, when, when it comes to physical, we go to the gym, we work out we're like, yeah, I've worked out a while. I get sore. So obviously I'm sore. Well, okay. You work out long enough. You know, that getting sore is a part of lactic acid breaking down in your muscles. And that's what actually makes your muscles stronger. When it comes to emotions or work, we try to shy away, right? Our amygdala says, oh, period, pain, pain avoidant. Let's shy away from pain. I don't want pain. I don't want pain. I don't want pain. We're pain avoidant. But that the stuff that we go through when it we call it failure, it's not failure, it's a stepping stone. It's only failure if we stop, in my opinion. Yeah, totally. Now, I always like the um, the saying, uh, and of course, this is an old saying. So, for those of you who this applies to everyone, right? Hard times create hard men. Soft times create soft men, and soft men create harder times <laughs> because there's no growth. There's no 
like you, you know, and Genghis Khan's about the best example of this in his ancestors and his descendants, two or three generations after Genghis Khan, everyone got soft empire went away. Now, not saying that Genghis Khan empire is a good idea, not saying that he didn't do a lot of bad things, but same with the Roman empire, same with all of these things where people didn't, they stopped growing and really expanding their horizons. And that could be for bad expanding an empire, taking over and dominating people. But the analogy is the same and the results are the same. When people get compliant and complacent and weak and don't work on being in the discomfort, outside the comfort zone, whatever you want to call it, it creates soft people and soft people create really hard times. <laughs> yeah, I think also, yeah, you're, I think you're, you're right on that. I, I think what happens also is um, people get comfortable. Mm-hmm. And there's this zone of comfortability where you're not uncomfortable enough and you're not too comfortable where you're willing to take risks on certain things that you just kind of live this white picket fence. Nothing wrong with this, but this is, you know, white picket fence, 2.5 children, you know, car in the garage, so to speak, kind of American dream that we were sold post-World War II and, you know, all of that. There's nothing wrong with that life at all but i would i would challenge everybody living that life if they really stripped away everything are they living a life of joy they might have moments of joy but are they living a life that truly makes them challenged and joy and feel vibrant and maybe they are um but i think the majority of people live a life of like it's not bad enough so why make a change it's not good enough uh so i don't you know why take the risk right you know not and um, what happens is what you see and hear a lot about on the entrepreneurial front is um, anytime people make big changes in their life, it's usually that they've catalyzed to the bottom in some fashion, right? Uh, they, they, you know, a business went under, a family member died, they got diagnosed, so, you know, something, divorce, like something, um, right? And by the way, I've, I've been through almost all of those <laughs> personally, right? And when that, when it gets bad enough, you start looking at like, well, shit, if everything, you know, needs to change, maybe I need to change everything. And, you know, they say by the time you're 35, your, your, you know, your neural networks in your brain are basically hardwired, which means that the way you think, the way you solve problems, the way you look at the world, the way you kind of attack is like, it's like, oh, yep, that's the roadway. That's the pathway. Right. And, uh, and so to rewire that stuff, to learn a new pathway kind of after that big threshold where your brain is still neuroplastic till the day you die, yeah. but needs to be trained into new ways, yeah. it's usually the catalyst to the bottom that causes people to have to figure out what that is. And, you know, when you, when you go down that route um, and you hit rock bottom, oftentimes people go, well, there's, you know, there's no other options. I got to I got to Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally, totally understand that. I mean, it's interesting because it's almost the whole, I got nowhere else to go but up or I am in a position where I don't have many other options. And I think this is the key. This is the key that's that's super interesting. Um, When you have too many options, then I think you start to become either a little analysis paralysis or a little lazy or a little like, 
comfortable, right? Because that's, that's it. If it's not bad enough and you have two kids and a mortgage yeah, and a wife and her husband or whatever yeah. it is, yeah. right? Like, like if it's not bad enough, what's, why would you change anything? I don't believe you're comfortable. You live a comfortable life, but chances are that life wasn't, wasn't what you set out to script to do, or if it was, it's not what you thought it was. And yeah. there's something somewhere, somehow along the line that would light you up from the inside out that you're yeah. not doing or right. you don't want to do because you're too afraid or you think you're too old or you can't do it or this, for all these reasons, the society's programmed into us. And this is why you see so many people are hitting like, you know, quarter midlife crises where they're like, well, society told me if I did all these things, then I'd be happy. And then they get there. They're fucking miserable. Yeah. I know that I was there. Yeah. That was me in the bottom. And yeah. I was like, wait a second, let me open my eyes and say, let me yeah. actually do things that bring me joy and invest in joy every single day. And then, you know, I call it my ROJ, the return on joy of that compounded, yeah. like compounded interest over time. Yeah. Right? I love that. Return on joy. Boy, I think that's a great place to end it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brent, um, for just a fantastic discussion on just all sorts of things. I mean, just I think the having that attitude that you've had as you built this for all entrepreneurs just seems like a better way to kind of really walk with them as opposed to be, you know, being in the same in the trench, so to speak. So yeah, yeah. appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate your energy and for what you're doing with the show. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Brent, for your time. Such a fascinating conversation, you know, as someone in the agency business as well. I always love talking shop <laughs> with folks. So um, as promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Brent. Brent's attitude is to treat each failure as a learning experience. See failures as just another part of the process and keep persevering. So I absolutely resonate with this. In fact, the first line of the entrepreneur ethos is failure is an option, but never the end result. And I always think of failures as best I can as learning experiences. So if you can do that, it's a really good idea. It helps also lessen the sting of failure. So if you're going through some failures, ask yourself, what can I learn from this? What would I do differently? Are there things that I'm going to improve now or in the future? Um, there are no real overnight successes ever. I can barely think of one, to be honest. So life is going to be full of setbacks and challenges, and that's going to include some failure. In evolving Stealth Venture Labs to what it is today, Brent looks at the pain points of clients and seeks to differentiate the company from others. This has led to developing a different way of working to service clients better. Find a way to be unique and differentiate yourself, whether it's a product, a service, or a process. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's the differentiation of how you solve someone's pain or challenge that is really going to help you kind of narrow in on what you want to do. I mean, there's lots of ways to think about this, but um, one of the questions I always ask is, what is the one thing or the unique thing that me or my company or my product can do the best? Now, you may have other reasons or other things that you do really well, but if you focus on that one thing, then you can kind of navigate away and kind of really double down on that and actually see if there's a market as well. Embracing the unknown and discomfort is key. Companies that have been around a long time that are willing to evolve and change are those that will continue to innovate. 
Sometimes taking a risk helps you to break out of a rut. So, yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, you know, maybe you should do a side hustle, break out of the rut of the nine to five. You know, it's important to innovate and have challenges and struggles that you may or may not actually succeed at. I know it's a little scary, (laughs) but it's true. You should be failing forward. You should be learning. And again, don't think of it as learning. Think of it as, I'm sorry, don't think of it as failure. Think of it as learning, right? You, You learn anything, an instrument, learn how to write, any sort of thing, you're always really bad at it. So it's the practice that makes you better. So think about what I can practice at, what do I need to learn? These are not failures. These are learning opportunities, et cetera. So there you have it. The actionable insights I learned from my awesome interview with Brent. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.